Hi, this is Burning Heron. This is Dole. Hey, this is Melonbread. This is Kevin. This is Jake Cook. Hi, this is Will Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss some of the broad categories that define Delta Green scenarios, and indeed scenarios in many role-playing games. We'll also talk about an article Melonbread read about descriptive text and how to keep your players' attention. But first, I wanted to revisit our segment on DG-related media to talk about a TV show. So do you remember a couple episodes ago you guys were talking about um, non-Delta Green media and how to gamify it and apply it to Delta Green? Absolutely were. Have you guys ever seen Fringe? I saw Fringe, yeah. I saw a couple episodes. So Fringe is a paranormal conspiracy procedural, kind of like the X-Files, except Mulder has the explicit approval of Homeland Security and, like, funding and isn't just stuffed in a dusty FBI basement to, to rot. So it's literally the program's version of the X-Files. No, it really is. It really, it is, it is literally, well, not literally, but it is Delta Green without the mythos. That's, that's it. Also, wasn't it created by a lot of the X-Files devs? You mean writers? Yeah, and it suffered in the end from some of the same problems. Well, let's, let's, not, let's not jump the gun there. Also, I don't know what you're talking about. There were only three seasons. There, there definitely wasn't a fourth season, and there de- sure wasn't a fifth season. But yeah, as as far as relevance to Delta Green, as I said, for all intents and purposes, Fringe Division is the program. They even have a March Tech analog in uh, in Massive Dynamic, which is an even more ominous name for a company. Uh, I've been kind of binge watching it, Fringe binging uh, recently. I watched a bit of it when I was stuck in the airport uh, on the way back from Gen Con. So we've got this television show that you've sketched out the basics of it. What is the way that you would take content from this television program and bring it into the world of Delta Green? Well, it's a great resource to mine just for for non-mythos or for indirectly mythos uh, mission ideas, which is... I'm inter- very interested now. It's it's a theme that I know some of you have expressed a, a preference for. Uh, most of the, the things that happen on Fringe are things that happen as a result of people being you know, bad people or or dumb people or unlucky people, as opposed to outside forces intervening and fucking with humanity because it's funny. Uh, the episodes are also useful narrative models for designing investigative scenarios. Uh, lots of tricks to crib for, for the player side, and also like roadblocks to throw in from the handler side for how to make things interesting in, in ways that are fun and progress the story that aren't just, no, you don't get the clue, everybody go home. Another thing I like about uh, Fringe that could, could be applicable to Delta Green is, um, do you remember we said on an earlier episode, and actually I think we said this in the episode about media, that lots of supernatural media have the problem where the protagonist is a wizard or has superpowers or is the Antichrist. Uh, Fringe, notably, all the protagonists are regular people. Most of them don't even have badges. Like the three main characters are Olivia Dunham, who's an FBI special agent, fair enough. Then you've got Walter Bishop, who's for all intents and purposes, a mad scientist who's just got out of the insane asylum. And you have his international criminal son, Peter Bishop, who also doesn't have a badge. So there's some, some useful archetypes to draw on there for, for creating Delta Green agents that aren't just, you know, police and FBI and CIA and all that shit. This, so it sounds like it's not a far cry away from something like the X-Files where you can more or less directly adapt the source material to a Delta Green scenario. However, I do recall from watching Fringe that were, that one of the ways that they solve all these mysteries 
is that the super science man basically remembers everything indirectly because he's responsible for most of the wizard shit. And so there are episodes that turn on, I think it's, it's Walter, right? A lot of them, yeah, a lot of them hinge on Walter coming up with a pseudoscience solution. But it's not just a, the pseudoscience solution that he comes up with his scientific brain. It's because he remembers creating the monster or the, the physics or whatever in the first place or the drug. Well, it's, it's it, or it's usually because he remembers doing the precursor research that enabled these guys to do the thing they're doing now. So how would we translate that into Delta Green? Because I like the idea of destroying, of beating the creature with science. Something I would add is that as the show goes on, that becomes less of a thing. They start encountering more and more things that Walter didn't work on, so then he actually does actual science. All right, so here, here's, a, here's a question which I feel is important in when someone says you should watch this show, especially because I know I've, I've tried watching it before, and I've, I don't remember how far I got, but it just didn't grab me. On your honest assessment, how many episodes should someone give a college try to before that you say either you like it or you don't? Oh, interesting. I think that instead of asking, and that's a valid question, rather than going with a number of episodes, I would say it's the onus is on the person recommending the show to pick one that they think the other person will like and they think is representative. Yeah, I, I can't stand watching things out of order, though, so I would never do that to someone. And that depends on the show, though, because a lot of shows, like a lot of shows that works, like if I was going to get somebody started watching on Star Trek, I'd give them like The Measure of a Man, which is halfway through season two, which is a fucking great episode. Yeah, exactly. So if it's episodic, just pick a good episode. But if it's serialized, like Fringe is somewhat serialized if it's serialized i would i would define a cutoff point and i would define it differently for a series like if i was saying hey you should watch babylon 5 i would say look you're gonna have to just sit down and power through the entire first season i'm sorry you will thank me later all right so that's the same question with fringe go uh fringe grabbed me pretty quickly honestly when i started because I, I i watched it when it first aired and I, I went back and I watched it again in the case of fringe i would say if it doesn't grab you by the first by the first couple of episodes don't worry about it. It's probably not your thing. Because it, it, Fringe starts off, like most J.J. Abrams shows, Fringe starts really, really strong and then uh, kind of loses the plot around the third season. But the first three seasons are amazing. I mean, excuse me, the only three seasons are amazing. Actually, four is not that bad either. It just irked me how they reshot most of the first three seasons just without Peter. I think that... Actually, Heron, Heron, Heron have you seen Fringe? I have not seen Fringe, no. Well, I highly recommend it. I especially recommend going into it with the mindset of, I'm going to watch this and see what I can steal for Delta Green. I think I, I linked in the Discord the scene where Dunham gets read into the into Fringe Division. A lot of people said to me after that, like, holy shit, this is Delta Green as fuck. The other difference, Fringe is a legitimate part of the, the state security apparatus. Yeah, they're an actual uh, division of Homeland Security. They are allowed to show their badges and tell people what they're actually working on. They're supposed to keep people ignorant, but it's kind of up to them. They have almost... Typically what they do is they say, oh, I'm, I'm from Homeland Security, and that's that's it. But... They are very different from Delta Green in that regard, because even the newly legitimized program, at least the way the developers envision it based on their statements at the panel at Gen Con, the, the program basically offers no resources to its agents, has no official police powers, has no secret, although there's mention of them in the, the handler's guide, but just going by what Shane, Dennis, Scott et al. said you aren't basically running you are you are the guy in the basement at the FBI headquarters you are running this on a shoestring budget even if you're playing as the program the supposedly legitimate one you have no resources you have no official remit and that's something that's different in fringe true however there are several delta green scenarios in which the agents explicitly have a cover whether that is an FBI task force or uh, fake DOE credentials or what have you uh observer effect uh viscid 
the last equation. Lover in the ice. Lover in the ice, yeah. All scenarios where the agents actually have uh, a, a legend that gives them somewhat flexible powers, like legal authority, if no one looks too closely. All right, so you would, you would recommend Fringe as a good source of DG non-mythos uh, material. Yes, non-mythos and procedural and investigative material. Lots of good stuff. I recommend it on its own merits, actually. It's, it's, it's a fun show. I have another thing that I can say about Fringe that's, that's nice, is that it isn't like other television programs where watching it is a huge commitment, because it's not serialized for the most part, or the parts that are good are not. Yeah, it's, it's sort of pseudo-serialized. You can watch, if, even if you do like it, you can watch one or two episodes and not be in for the whole, the long haul, essentially. You don't have to wait to get to the good stuff, which is, which is very important. Because of that thing I said earlier about how many many uh, media properties don't start out particularly strong. There's a few different kind of tropey things to Delta Green scenarios. Uh, I think one of the easiest ones, maybe where we can start off, is the uh, the bug hunt, which is probably in Dungeons and Dragon terms, you would just call a dungeon crawl. I disagree. Oh, how how would you differentiate the two? Well, a dungeon crawl doesn't necessarily mean that you're going into the dungeon to kill everything that moves. The purpose of a dungeon crawl is, to, is typically to recover treasure from a location, which is quite different from going into somewhere to, somewhere to liquidate everything you can. The term bug hunt, I think when we use it here, is typically a derisive term for a scenario where the objective is to roll firearms until the problem goes away. Isn't that every Delta Green scenario? That is, in fact, one of my primary criticisms of the game's design. All right, so what can be done to a bug hunt to make it more interesting and make it fun to play? Be upfront about the bug hunt. Tell the players at the start, this is a scenario where you are killing things. Don't bring a computer scientist or an anthropologist or anything like that, unless it is a type of scenario where you have thought carefully about how to provide interesting mechanical hooks for people who are not 80% in guns. I also think another thing you can do to kind of ease the monotony of a bug hunt is you provide another objective besides kill everything that the players also have to complete. For instance, you have to protect a specific NPC in addition to killing all the bad guys. You have to... Uh, reach a certain location in a certain amount of time. Um, I know we are, I think a lot of us have played XCOM before, and that is typically pretty good about this, where it gives you secondary objectives, like you need to hack a terminal, etc., etc., in addition to killing all the aliens. Now, would you include something along the lines of, like, uh, kind of to combine both of your ideas, if, you, if you're bringing anthropologists along, they have to complete the magic ritual, which takes X turns while all the gunfighters have to hold the line? I would say um, the magic ritual would be a means to an end. Like, what is the ritual intended to complete? Like, if it's if the ritual is intended just to wipe out all the creatures you're fighting, then that is not necessarily very different. That's just an easier way of, or a faster way of solving the bug hunt. If the ritual is intended to... I don't know, contact a mythos deity or something. I think the main way that a bug hunt is interesting is if it is really grindhousey. It's gone into with the expectation that the characters are pretty disposable and that not all of them will survive. And 
I know that I said that bug hunt and dungeon crawl are not synonymous, but if you take a location and fill it with a lot of interesting stuff, in addition to monsters to fight, stuff that can often be quite dangerous, and you put a set of pretty disposable characters through that, I think that's the way to make it interesting and the way to make it fun. I think a topic or an idea we'll come back to many times in discussing scenarios is you have the basic idea. A bunk hut is there's a bunch of bad things in that warehouse. Go into the warehouse, kill all the bad things. Every scenario at its basic is kind of boring or can be boring. But when you combine elements of X, Y, Z, or you add subtlety to an adventure, all of a sudden you make something very exciting. And I think uh, if we ever discuss our favorite scenarios, we'll find elements of different things in them. This is kind of we we kind of hinted at this a little bit with the idea of using something or having another motivation in the bug hunt. But another you know major kind of scenario type thing is a is a fetch quest, which is basically just go somewhere and get something. Usually it is conflated by some sort of bad thing happening. You know, whether bad guys, traps, investigative hurdles, etc. But the basic idea is go retrieve this, go secure this, go get this and bring it back from A to B. Alright, I think you can have uh, a surprising amount of depth to a scenario where that is the basic structure. I know you ran a Vietnam scenario where we were... You didn't mandate it, but I think all of us rolled uh, U.S. Army Special Forces in Vietnam. And our mission was to get a box from one end of Huey... Uh, during the Battle of Way and the Dead Offensive. You know, the key with the fetch quest is to make it more about what happens on the way to and from. One of the really good examples I like to use in terms of creating tension or, or creating drama is the movie Sicario. It's a scene, as a kind of long scene in the beginning where they have to travel across the border, pick up, f- fetch something, and travel back across the border to the United States. And the whole scene is very, very tense and kind of nothing happens up until right at the end. But by that point, you're basically edge of your seat waiting for it it's very well done uh exactly what you're fetching or carrying is not of utmost importance you can really just treat it as MacGuffin, just a thing to motivate the players to go from a to b and back again it's really just yeah what kind of challenges do you face getting back there and how much tension can you milk out of trying to make the players jump? Is this the place where we're going to have a fight? Is this the place where somebody might try to take it from us? You know, I think you can ratchet up the tension very minorly, even just calling for a certain check, you know, calling for a check uh, for a, some sort of awareness, alertness type check, or calling for a drive check and then going on the, okay, no, or pointing out really subtle things, you, you know, describing the flavor of what's happening around you, having some different flavor things written down ahead of time to describe what's going on can really kind of ratchet up because the players will amongst themselves will if you give them a little tidbit you chum the water just a little bit they will they'll take it right to 11 with paranoia oh yeah that is that is the natural state of a player character where they will latch on to anything you say and they will build it up in their own minds so that kind of rolls us into the type of scenario which we we tend to see quite a bit where in terms of players ratcheting up to 11, there are definitely some scenarios where if the players showed up at the gaming table and all decided to go across the street to Starbucks and role-played three hours of drinking coffee, the scenario would resolve itself in a better way, or likely in a better way than, than if the players actually got involved with the scenario as it stands. Yeah, like, uh, what are some examples you can think of? Because I have one that jumps out at me right away. Uh, from published Delta Green... I would say probably Holy War is a scenario that the players don't need to get involved in until the very end. But I think your example is probably better, because Holy War does have a component that requires the involvement of Delta Green. It just happens to be at the very end of the book. 
one of the ones I like to point out in this case is uh, is Kali Gadi, where you know the players do nothing, the sleeper doesn't awaken, and nothing happens. Interesting. So you guys both pulled published scenarios. The one I was thinking of is a shotgun scenario I ran, which you were actually in a Lindel called Project Anthropocene, where the idea is that an Australian multi-millionaire, possibly billionaire, I can't quite recall, decides he's going to make a statement about global warming by sailing an iceberg uh, from Antarctica to Sydney Harbor, and inside is an anomalous creature that Delta Green wants destroyed. But the act of kind of getting the players there and breaking through the ice to destroy this creature is what wakens the creature and causes it to destroy the iceberg and potentially kill everyone on it. Another example, not to toot my own horn, is a scenario I wrote called Stop Repo, where the players do nothing, the other elements in that scenario will just handle it. Maybe a little more violent than the players might have, but, you know, not as clean. Uh, I, don't, I don't think these are bad scenarios. I think what's exciting about them is as a player realizing that you may be making things worse or you may be making things better and you really don't know you just have to keep you know moving forward and and trying to contain the ever-growing pile of problems but it can be fun to look back and be like you know if we'd just gone nowhere today we would be fine i was curious to hear what you guys thought of this type of scenario just because uh we tend to have fairly strong opinions on what makes good or bad design and so this might be frustrating for a player, but at the same time, it might feed into the sort of bleakness Delta Green really feeds on. The idea that nothing you do matters, and in fact, getting involved may just make everything worse. Yeah, there's a and there's a, a kind of a kind of a meme about it. But in the Indiana Jones movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, like Indiana Jones doesn't really do anything, and if he didn't exist, the Nazis would have they would just go find the Ark, dig it up, bring it to the island, open it up, and all die. The only difference is that Indiana Jones is there to like put the cover back on and bring the Ark home. So he doesn't really do anything the whole movie. And there are definitely some Delta Green scenarios where the Delta Green players have no actual interaction or whatever interaction they may have is worse. Do you guys know the secret of the movie Inglorious Bastards? The secret of that movie is that the French plan to kill the Nazis would have, ex- would have succeeded and the Americans almost fucked it up. If the Bastards had done nothing... They would have lived, and Hitler would have died. It would have been the same result, except that they would have survived. But by their clumsy attempt to disguise themselves as Italians, they inadvertently gave away the whole scheme to Colonel Hans Landa, and it was only because he himself was quite treasonous that the plan was able to go off without a hitch. So, essentially, the NPCs had that one tied up, and it was the Delta Green agents fucking everything up that almost caused the the failure condition to trigger. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good example. Kind of leaping off from Project Anthropocene, that whole scenario takes place onto, or at least it takes place on a single glacier in the middle of the ocean. And so that kind of lends itself to the idea of a two concepts that seem to be closely related, a lifeboat scenario and a bottle scenario. So a bottle episode refers to an episode of a television show where... In order to save money, the crew create the crew films an episode that involves a limited number of characters in a limited number of sets, typically only one set. And so these are typically pretty well regarded because they allow you to dig deep into the characters. And so a bottle scenario does a similar thing where 
you limit yourself to a single location where the players can move around and interact with people. And the idea being you create greater depth of interactivity by uh, having more fine detail. Are there any published scenarios that come to mind that fit this uh, fit this idea? I was thinking maybe maybe observer effect. There are obviously multiple locations within within the compound, but it all takes place within the same compound. Observer effect is a great example, yes, of trying to squeeze as much interactivity as possible around a single location. Yeah, observer effect would be the one I would point to. Maybe, maybe the night floors, but the surreal nature of that means you're certainly not limited to any one constant location. Maybe control copy, uh, which is on Dennis Network's Patreon, because everything revolves around the same central location and central NPC. Most shotgun scenarios, I think, are bottle scenarios. If not most, then lots of them. Yeah, I would agree with lots. And, you know, it's it seems detrimental to say the crew is trying to save money, so they're going to do a bottle scenario. It's not always true. But there have been some fantastic bottle episodes of TV, like Breaking Bad, The Fly. Yeah, the most famous bottle episode of, of anything ever is probably the Chinese restaurant episode from Seinfeld. Yeah, that's a good example. I was going to say the one in Breaking Bad where the fly is in the uh, cook area for the whole episode. That's another fantastic character development one. And definitely not because they were short on money. Yeah, I was going to say that a lot of the a lot of the fan favorite episodes of uh, DS9 were bottle episodes. Like the one where Kira interrogates the Cardassian war criminal and then some other stuff happens was one that they just did with one, with basically three actors and one costume and a bunch of shit they already had built. So it kind of steers us towards... Uh, a, a type of scenario I really like called, or does a type of bottle scenario called the lifeboat scenario, and it's I guess kind of based off of the Alfred Hitchcock movie Lifeboat. The idea being that you have a kind of a, it's a locked room type scenario, all contained, and there's usually some sort of traitor or saboteur. I worked on a scenario called Cabin in the Woods that was related to this, where there's a bunch of war veterans who go to a cabin and try to deal with their problems, and a few of them are kind of mentally unstable. So almost all the drama is from player interactions and, and less from outside interference, unless it's a something like an environmental factor, maybe an uh, ice storm trapping you there, something like that. Yeah, it seems like the big, the defining feature of a lifeboat scenario as opposed to a bottle scenario is that it's not just personal motivations keeping you there. There is some kind of physical obstacle preventing you from leaving. And I think it's key that there's... So I'm going to say this in a minute, say uh, unsay it right away, but I think it's key if there's some sort of kind of traitor or saboteur type thing to deal with. Now, I think a good example of a lifeboat scenario in Delta Green is uh, the kind of the end of Black Sat, where there isn't necessarily a traitor, although there can be. Uh, it's more just that you're you're trapped in this thing, you're trapped in this ship. You're everything you need to survive as long as you do the right things and make make some tough choices. So we've talked pretty a lot about, or most of the scenarios we talked about are usually time sensitive. Go here, get this now. Go there, clear the warehouse from bad guys now. You're trapped in this lifeboat now, etc. One of the types of scenarios that I, I honestly don't have a good example for and we don't see much is the slow burn scenario, where you have much more time to do investigations. Uh, you have much more time to kind of figure out the clues and the puzzle and to kind of nibble around the, the, the problem. What I really like about a slow burn is you can actually use the acquisition rules to get items that might take three days to get. Which just never happens in traditional. I mean, generally never happens in traditional Delta Green play. Well, it depends on what we consider to be traditional play, because a lot of the older campaigns, like something such as Holy War, that took place over days or weeks, 
it would be entirely realistic for players to go out and get uh, get uh, more equipment or get get things through legitimate channels, get law enforcement to do stuff. I know, for example, there's a scenario called oh god, what is it? A dead letter. Dead in dead letter, there is a rich body of instructions for how to use the FBI's legitimate system of well, legitimate the FBI's illegal then illegal but still functioning system of criminal informants within political movements to activate people at a site and force them to spy on your enemies for you like you use you use some old cointel pro informants through threats of revealing their affiliation with the FBI during the 1960s and 70s to get intelligence on the secret Nazi dog zombie factory yeah that's a that's a good example but that that is that's a scenario that can be played as a slow burn. Although the thing about it is that there's a timetable set for what the NPCs do if you don't kick your shit into Top Gear. And I think a lot I think a lot of scenarios or some scenarios that could be slow burns tend not to be because players don't want to wait around and players generally have a heightened sense of get it done now, get it done now. So if somebody says, well, I can requisition a surveillance drone, but it'll take two days, people are going to be like, whatever, let's just drive over there and look at the damn place. Yeah. That is one of the biggest uh, challenges with a game based on espionage or surveillance is that in order to do that stuff in real life, you have to be very patient, and being patient is not fun. Carefully crafting and executing a plan that requires patience can be fun, but the actual act of waiting for two days, waiting to get a warrant, waiting to uh, for someone to say something interesting on a wiretap, all the shit that real law enforcement or real spies have to deal with is quite dull. Unless you're the sort of person who enjoys it, in which, and then and, and Delta Green does tend to attract those people. Yeah, and it's also not really compelling gameplay. In, re- in real life, you might spend all day poring over reports of you know people who were seen at the scene of a crime, and you're going to do a deep dive in every one of them. But in this game, you just make a roll, and the handler gives you the top three. You know what I mean? Because it would be really boring and time-consuming as a handler to go through 50 eyewitness reports or you know 50, 50 license plate checks or something. But in reality, that would buy you the time to get the warrant, to get the surveillance request, to get the stingray, whatever the case may be. There's also another aspect to a lot of the published scenarios, which is that if you wait too long, the supernatural is going to reveal itself to the broader public. So you have a very tight timetable to try and preempt the supernatural and keep the story out of the public view. Yeah, and it's... It's like, you know, sometimes that's hard written in the scenario, and sometimes it's more that's more of a player or a handler trying to move things along. And I do think, you know, if I was running a scenario where, say, the book said in two days this happens, and a player they had this really awesome plan that was going to take three days to hatch with a bunch of requisitions and a bunch of complex moving parts that they had hatched, and it was this awesome plan, you know, I might be tempted to say, okay, well, we'll make it three days and make this interesting. But you don't always have that luxury, or you may be a player and a GM may not have that idea or, or whatever. There is... A thing that shows up again and again in the old Delta Green modules, but not in the new ones. In the old ones, there is constant instruction to adjust timescales, adjust the facts of the game world, to produce dramatic moments like that, rather than allowing the action to happen off-screen, or, as you said, for the villain's plot to succeed because the players were busy setting up the awesome plan. It's a difference in philosophy, I think, from the old game to the new game, because the new game is about gritty, uncompromising realism, whereas the old game was more about gonzo, pulpy, 90s conspiracy action. Yeah, I can definitely see that. That's interesting, because I ran 
Sentinels of Twilight, which is the sample scenario included in the Handler's Guide recently. And that one has a timeline of when different NPCs will arrive in Yosemite National Park to see what is going on. But uh, in, it includes advice to the Handler, which says if the players are getting are slowing down and getting too complacent, have an NPC suddenly show up way earlier than was expected to force the players to react. So it does something similar where it uh, encourages you to play with the timeline based on how the players are interacting with the current state of the world. That's fair. So maybe I mischaracterized New Delta Green's attitude towards uh, essentially from that. Because one of the th- well, that's one of the big debates in RPGs, if you recall, the very first RPG designer said to his followers in his big book of RPG design, which was first edition, you can't have a meaningful campaign if strict time records are not kept, to which I say, this isn't fucking Dilbert. I'm not filling out my time cards in 50-minute increments. But there is a school of design that says that the game world is alive, it reacts and does things on its own, even when the players aren't there, and therefore... It is possible for the clock to advance and for all this stuff to happen independently of what the players are doing. But what you're describing is, I think, the, more the way I would do it, which is have the time, have the clock advance, but have there be a bias towards interesting things happening where the players can see them. Now, here's a, a, a question. We've talked about bottle scenarios. We've talked about lifeboat scenarios. I'm looking at the possibilities here, and I see that we have on the docket to discuss scenarios where the primary mechanical hook is interaction with other Delta Green agents or with other Delta Green operations? Yeah, I think that usually comes in the form of you're called in after the fact to clean up something that went horrifyingly wrong. Um, or maybe you're called in after the fact to interrogate a bunch of agents who run a mission before you. So like uh, the classic example being Star Chamber of a scenario of this type? This sounds like the premise of a bunch of shotgun scenarios as well. For, for instance, Metamorphosis where... Uh, a Delta Green cell is afflicted by some supernatural horror, and you come in on them at the worst possible moment. The The question to ask with all these scenarios when you're writing them is, is, is the thing that I'm cleaning up after more interesting than cleaning up after it? Because it's one thing to run into a cool, chaotic situation and try to... Because to, it lets you skip right to the to the fun part and skip all the you know, the surveillance and all the investigative stuff, because some people find that boring or difficult to to get the players to sit through. But the question is, would it be more fun if I was the agent that went in and cleaned out the lab, or if I was the agent that went and investigated the sorcerer killing people in the Makashika Badlands? And Star Chamber kind of squares the circle by letting you be both, by letting you be both the operatives who fucked everything up and the people investigating it. Something I would like to do, and I never have, but I've always planned it, um, is I've never actually TPK'd a party um, outside of like a, maybe a one-shot here and there. But if, if you TPK'd a party and it was really some horrifying thing, then when they show up for the next scenario, their initial job is to clean up the mess that their old dead characters caused. So then, again, you've kind of done both. So like you kind of get that meta moment of like, ah, oh, crap, we know what this is, but our new characters don't. Let's go in there and figure it out. I was talking to someone in my Francophone Skype chat he was in a he was running convert not running he was playing convergence and his party got wiped by the protomatter fetus so literally killed by a baby which is pretty embarrassing but then 
they played the next team that went in to investigate Grobersville. I think they also ended up getting wiped out by drinking the water or some stupid thing like that. Because oh, if you'll recall, Convergence has that fuck you built into it, where at the end of the scenario, anyone who ate or drank anything just dies instantly. So I think one of the keys, if you're going to write a scenario where cleaning up, the, cleaning up the mess is, if you have a cool idea for a mess and that's all you have, then write a scenario to get there. But if you have a cool scenario and you need a mess to set up your cool scenario, don't be afraid to have the mess be the catalyst, as long as the mess isn't the coolest part of your whole game. And I think that there may be a bit of a bias towards these type of scenarios in the latest round, and maybe even the round before that, probably not the round before that, of the shotgun scenarios, because pretty much all we have about new Delta Green, the only thing we know is about Delta Green itself. Because all of the other faction stuff, all of the new threats have yet to be released. So people, when they're, when they're looking for material to build off of, are finding material about the organization itself. And so that finds itself being used in scenarios that are very much focused inward on cleaning up after other operations or other people trying to clean up after you. So I, I think the meme answer you're going to give me is it's all really Delta Green, but I would almost lump in things where you clean up, say, a Marsh Technologies mess, or you clean up a old MJ-12 mess, which isn't, strictly speaking, Delta Green. Like, it's not like it's a bunch of other agents doing the exact same thing that fucked up. It's the larger conspiracy or part of the larger conspiracy causing a problem. But I would kind of roll those into the same sort of scenario, loosely. I mean, that's basically last things last. Uh, is that it's a failure of conscience of somebody from the cowboy years. And so the new recruits have to go figure it out and make it go away. I think that's one where I wouldn't want to play the prequel. Yeah, I think there's a risk that alluding to it and hinting at what happened is scarier or just more interesting than having everything that happened explained to you directly. Like, look at look at the quality between the thing from 1982 and the thing from 2011. There is just stuff that is more interesting when it clutches on your imagination and festers there. I forget where I read it. I, I want to say Ken Scroggins told me this story, but it could, be, could have been anywhere. It could have been one of you guys. I don't know. But they were playing Last Things Last, and the handler did such a good job of freaking them out that the players wouldn't even enter the first building. They just burned the whole building down like threw Molotov cocktails to the window and then left. That is not a story that I remember telling you because I've never run that scenario. But I think that is a certainly a risk that I've seen described over and over again of, I think it was people talking about old school Call of Cthulhu, but it applies equally to Delta Green, that if every box has a spider in it, the players stop opening the boxes. Yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job of... Uh running through some of the basic and less basic types of scenarios. I mean, my feeling is still, you take a little bit of here and there from different types of scenario, a little bug hunt, a little bottle, a little whatever you want to do and make an interesting scenario, but it's good to have an idea of what kind of the types are just in your head, because then maybe you can kind of figure out what the tropes of those types of scenarios are and use those to help you build off of it. something that I have been thinking about for quite some time in tabletop RPGs, and it's what is the appropriate amount of time to spend on things? How fast or how slow should you go in RPGs? And specifically, what is the appropriate pace to set when delivering information to 
keep the interest of the players and to ensure the optimal rate of absorbing whatever it is that you're telling them. See, you, you've already lost me. My, my attention spins out the window already, man. You took too long. You're going to hate this answer because I know how you think and how you run games. Uh, and this is also the worst answer for our listeners. But the answer is it varies. You should all talk about this ahead of time and then uh, agree as a group of players how you want to tell your collaborative narrative story. The fact of the matter is that you, the listener, are an autonomous individual capable of making your own decisions, and you should do what you want. A human being with agency? Well, I mean, they're a human being with a conscious mind that tells itself that it's making decisions, when in reality it's rationalizing decisions that were already made by various subroutines floating around inside their head. But, but how do we know our listeners are rational human beings? How do we know our listeners are conscious? Are they Cylons? They could all just be, yeah, they could be Cylons, or they could all just be zombies. They could be... If you're... If you're conscious, uh, tweet your consciousness to at 9mm retirement. This would be brilliant if it was all deliberate and uh, an intentional bit. That's good. That's exactly what a conscious human being would say. Self-reflexivity. That's a a trait of a thinking mind. Or, Wait, were we talking about tangents and how to not get on them during uh, gameplay? We've, we've, we've gone off the fucking rails here. I found an article from like 2004 about some guys who went to Gen Con, very much like some of us are wont to do. And these guys were part of the company Wizards of the Coast, which is the company that publishes a very popular role-playing game and has done so for many years. And they decided that they would use this as an opportunity to brush up on how their own game design was doing. They ran a blog of about game design, and it's very interesting to read a long time later if you are someone who you know, remembers 3.5 and remembers all that stuff, or even just third, because... Oh yeah, at, at the bottom there's a survey. What do you think? Is the 3.5 Warlock way too But we can talk about, about how, you know, they had a coming awareness of how bloated and unworkable their project was gradually growing, because it, it's clear that they knew what everyone else now takes for granted, which is that 3.5 got too top-heavy. But the thing specifically they talk about in this article that I thought was interesting and that resonated with me is they talked about Specifically, specifically box text, but also just box text being in an RPG uh, module of any kind. Typically, there's a descriptive text that's presented in a box that you're supposed to read out loud to the players when they encounter whatever object it is, be it a person, place, or thing. And the box text is box because it's supposed to delineate this is what you read out loud versus the stuff that's concealed from the players. But the thing that struck me about this article was that it said that when you are reading a descriptive text to your players or giving a description of something, you have two sentences before they are no longer paying attention. No matter, even even if they're trying their best. He specifically uses the phrase, my eyes glazed over, and said that after this point, your players are looking at their, well, it wasn't looking at their phones because it would have been 2004, but they're stacking dice, they're doodling, what have you. Today they'd be looking at their phones. And I'm sure that if you run games, this is something that you've, seen, perhaps not directly tied to this cause. And so I said to the people in the Discord community that I post in, look at this article. I think that it it illustrates something that I can do better in my games, which is to talk less and let the players do more and to not belabor them with these exhaustive descriptions. The response that I got from every one of these animals was two sentences. If my players stopped listening after two sentences, they would miss all kinds of things and they would would not succeed in my games and so on. And the... and the thing that went through my head is, why do you think you have to repeat yourself so often to your players? 
Y- you might save more time by being brief at the beginning. I think that's true. And this is something that is important in an investigative game like Delta Green. Because let's face it, in 3.5, at least the way a lot of those modules were designed, you weren't really expected to spend a lot of time dealing with traps and uh, solving intricate mysteries. 3.5 isn't an investigative game, really. It's it's just a way to move from one combat encounter to and the you other. And could, you could tell great investigative stories in 3.5, but the meat of the game was the fighting. Something I, So I just ran the first half of Lover in the Ice uh, last Wednesday for a group of people. And what really struck me as interesting is the there's a, a big wall of text for the briefing. It's like two pages, or it's a full page in the PDF. But what they do in it is they highlight all the key points. You know, every every paragraph has like one bold couple words or sentences. And the, the instructions for the, for the handler are basically, hey, either read this or paraphrase it, but try to hit these points because these are the important points. So I was able to have, instead of just pontificating at my players for 10 minutes, I just had a conversation where they asked questions and I kind of steered them back into the answers in the bold text. And that worked out really well. I think that I think that it, it can be acceptable to give players a primary source document from inside the setting to read that's more than two sentences. And to be clear, I don't think the two-sentence rule is like a, a commandment given to us by the mighty messenger, father of the million favored ones. I just think that it's illustrative of something that I've thought to myself that I could improve on, which is that when you're presenting information, it's important to give out lots of information about the game world because text is a, and speech is a very low information density medium. So you have to often compensate by giving more descriptions for something that someone could just observe with their eyes in real life. So I, w- I wonder if we're, if we're conflating two, two, uh, two similar but different problems. Um, because one problem is the players will lose interest in, in you speaking after X amount of time, and then you have to drag them back somehow. Uh, but the other problem I think is if you're if you if if you're running the game normally, okay, you see a, a big shadow and it it's scary and it shoots at you, and all of a sudden you go the grandiose grand ballroom staircase twinkled in the twilight. It's, I mean, if you've shifted to your like narrative voice and it's really obvious, and every player is just tuned to be like, all right, I got a paragraph here, so I'll, you know I'll just listen in the background. I don't need to pay attention. So I wonder if you know certainly a better storyteller than I, if you. If you could get away with longer pontifications, if they were original and fit the story and weren't like some other text that another person had written that they have to shoehorn in to fit your piece. Are you talking about like the monotonous voice that you tend to take when you're reading directly from a book or something like that? That, and also, you know, sometimes the book is like, oh, as you come down the stairs, you see the witch and you're like, shit, my guy's kicked in the window. So you have to be like, as you come down the stairs, as you come down the window. You know what I always say is that people don't like it when you interrupt the box text, but inevitably the box text is like, as you stand there gawking at the wizard, he casts a spell and oh, I shoot him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I shot him the second I saw him. He's a, he's a wizard. What what else are you going to do? So then, I mean, is maybe the problem is bad box text. I wonder if... I don't think it is, though, because I think that this is something that I've observed, which is that people, even when they're listening, it's always better to make it more interactive. So instead of giving a long description of having people forget or just gloss over basic facts about the game world, Chief had a suggestion that rather than, rather than giving a long elaborate description, or rather than just tossing out all of the detail that you've prepared besides the two sentences, if we're taking on as fact that this two-sentence rule is true, you would 
divide your narrative up into chunks intended to be punctuated by the actions of the players, such as them asking questions about the game world, them having their characters perform interactions that would lead to them learning more about their surroundings or about what's happening. Right, kind of leaning off that. If Delta Green is meant to be an investigative game, rather than monologue at your players, encourage them to ask questions. It doesn't have to be, I'm using my skill, uh, what do I see? It can just be, what do I perceive about the basic nature of my surroundings? That's a, a good a good thought, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the scenario Lover in the Ice real quick again that I ran. Their players are investigating, and I won't spoil anything, they're investigating a trailer. One of my players are like, all right, how, what do I roll to investigate? And I would say, well, tell me how you're, like, tell me what your character's doing. Cause I, and he explained, I'm going to open up the drawers and like reach my hand under things, and those of us who know the scenario know what happens here but uh because he explained in narrative like a good search i gave him a little boost to his role which was cool but if he'd just been like uh, i don't know i look at stuff you know maybe he i want to toss the room yeah exactly so let the players decide a little bit and then if they say uh, i want to look under the keyboard you're like ah oh, you see a you know yellow post-it note with you know caviar written on it oh god it's a password you it know? goes back to the struggle in games to define what is up to the players to figure out and what is up to their skills because imagine in in a game where there was a riddle most people would take a dim view of the character saying i want to roll intelligence to solve the riddle but at the same time you don't ask someone for an elaborate narrative description of you know i i lift the uh the firearm i acquire the front sight I thumb back the hammer, <laughs> yeah. I take up first and second pressure on the trigger while maintaining a proper weaver stance to counteract the recoil by pushing forward with my whoa, right whoa, hand. Whoa. Weaver stance? No, it's all about the isosceles now. Isosceles, bro. Weaver is old. You're old school. Yeah, what is this, 1991? It's almost as if all of the Delta Green characters are rapidly decaying old people. So I'll, so I'll circle I'll circle back to your, your two-sentence uh, two thing. I think that's a, a good guideline. I think it was probably written as a blog post to be catchy, and they made it two sentences, which is probably a little short. But I do think that you know a long, overdone, poorly written, or written by someone else bunch of flavor text can definitely get in the way of player satisfaction. And I think you know we tend to run games online. It's much harder to know when you're losing folks. It's easier on the table because you see cell phones pick up, you see dice get stacked. But when you're looking at online. You don't really know if you're losing the players. So maybe brevity is the soul of role-playing. I think brevity is good, though. Even even if I was running big, long, expansive campaigns, I would still try to move at the speed that I currently move when I'm running games because imagine how much more stuff... Because game sessions are scarce resources, like very scarce. You're, you're, if you can get one a week, you're lucky. And I know that most people can't. So my opinion has always been that even when you have an ample amount of time, a scheduled session, etc., it is better to jam-pack what you have with as much of what you and your players find interesting as possible. Now, I also think if you, you know, this shouldn't stop you from writing grandiose pages of, of descriptive stuff just cut it up or bullet point it such that if there's instead of describing the massive room and this huge statue and the floor each other room let the players walk around it when one of them goes over by the statue bam give it two sentences about the statue you know when the player gets down on the floor to look something yeah give them the, the floor stuff and let's be clear it's not your it's not necessarily your responsibility as the person writing it to 
break everything up into two sentences chunks. You can write whatever the hell you want. It's certainly better to write. There's there's a debate in game design over whether certain modules or certain materials are meant to are written to be read or written to be run. And there's a lot of stuff out there that's just written to be read because it doesn't actually translate that well into a game. But if you're writing if you, if you're writing stuff to run, obviously you want it to to write it in a way that's easier for people to to translate to the to the game world. But you can write descriptive text with the assumption that this isn't going to be read out loud. Someone is going to look at this and pick out the parts they think are most important. Anyway, circle back to the two sentence things. It's uh, reminds me of uh, an acronym from the army, and we all know the army is is just absolutely full of of simple uh, mnemonic devices. But it's bluff, uh, bottom line, upfront. So you use it when you're writing uh, memorandums or uh, issuing orders, whatever the meat of what you want to get out there or the intent of your order, you put it out there first. We're going to take this hill. You're going to dig that hole. I need these three trucks ready by tomorrow. Bottom line up front. So the most important thing is what you should put out there first. If you want to convey to your players that they're standing in front of a door and on the other side of the door, there's movement. Well, now they're like, oh shit, what, what do I do? Uh, you tell me. Uh, another player says, oh, I'm going to run the bendy cam under the door. All right, you see a person uh, on the other side of the door. They're, uh, they're looking at a painting. They're painting a painting. Oh, what's the painting of? Uh, well, there is a castle that overlooks a lake. And, uh, you know, and then you go from there. And you, you're, you're keeping them invested in the story by moving it forward themselves. They become the driving force behind the investigation instead of you. The, uh, the bottom line was that there's something on the other side of this door and you end up moving forward with them finding out what's on the other side of the door. Moving on from Delta Green as an investigative game to Delta Green as a horror game, that's a good way to build dread and tension is just to drip feed information and make them uh, ask you for every additional piece of it. Oh, dude, yeah. Uh, if they want to come and keep pushing the issue, then like that's that's the point. Because the 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 article about three point five, like like we've talked about, three point five isn't an investigative game. It's a way to convey from one social scene to another, or from one combat scene to another. If you want your players to seek out like the horror elements, you've got to you've got to give it to them in little chunks so that they want more. And you know. Uh, like we talked about in the last things last discussion, a lot of the times players aren't going to want to open the hatch. You got to give them a reason to open the hatch. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking of a scene where somebody rolls their search or forensics or something like that, and you tell them, "Oh, okay, you find uh, a trail of blood. Well, where does the blood lead? It leads under that door over there." Uh, what's behind the door? And then you get to hit them with the sand loss. Either that or they're going to go, well, <laughs> I'm not going through that door. <laughs> Which is a perfectly valid choice. Like, there's nothing wrong with the player saying, nope, I value my peace of mind too much to learn this information. It might come back around where they'll regret not learning that and tanking the sand loss. But, you know, <laughs> it's something they're going to have to live with or not live with. Uh, so, uh, what's a good summary of what we've talked about today? I think uh, be cognizant of when you're starting to lose your players. Um, and uh, also, key to that is if you're going to if you're going to run this type of scenario where you're going to read a little bit of text to them and then ask them to react, just be upfront about that and say, hey, you know, this is 
this is how this module is run, how I run modules, whatever, give them the understanding. And if you're going to do it where you say, okay, you walk into a room with four doors and then stop and make them decide, let them know that. Because I have, I know some players who would just wait for me to describe the doors or would wait for someone else to do something. Whereas in reality, you might look at the doors, but they're not going to tell that to me. So as always, with almost all of our advice, it's talk to your players, talk to your handler uh, or your case officer or whatever the proper term is, because I'm bad at that. And uh, just, have, just formulate an understanding and, and whatever works for your game. Handler is the real person. Case officer is the person that sends your players in-game out. It's it's like the keeper in Call of Cthulhu and the handler in Delta Green. I've never actually played Call of Cthulhu. Oh, well, I mean, you're not missing out on much. That was episode 7 of The Green Box. In the description of this episode, you'll find links to the R Night at the Opera subreddit, as well as to our Discord server and our various social media pages. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. We'll be in touch.